Um, we are learning today, our topic today is the welfare state or character development. This is a second part of the series, call, a series called On the Giving End. I want to just start off by, by thanking Ed and Sandy Clark who are sponsoring this entire series. Um, as we now approach very fast the first year outside, or oh, just, just past this last Friday, the first yard site of Mr. David Clark, David C. Ben Yosef Yehuda, whose memory goes beyond the yard site, and uh, in, in many, many, many ways. Be'ezras Hashem Nishmasai Eden. We also want uh, to, to thank this morning Autumn and Bruce Mail, who are sponsoring today's share, as we note the yard site of Autumn's father, Mr. Walter Lido Zev Ben Moshe, whose um, smile was just a, a aperture into the, the, ha- um, the happiest being, person who has just lived a joyful life. And we want to also uh, thank the Cunans um, the who are sponsoring for the Yorkside Boba Yom today of Mr. Morris Siegel, Moshe Dov Ben Yitzhak Yosef, that is Lorraine's um, father, whose Yorkside is today Nishmosai Eden. He should have a Lechtzegegan Eden. We are also thanking Shalom and Lori Huberfeld, who are sponsoring for the Yorkside of Shalom's father, Pinchas. Huberfeld, Pinchas ben Moshe Aaron, upon his, uh, his upcoming yard site this week, God willing, he should have a continued alias neshama. And from afar, we, 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 we thank Yitzhak and Barbara Lehman, uh, Barbara Lehman Siegel, who are sponsoring for the yard site of Barbara's mother's yard site, Sarah, Sarah Ann Lehman, Sarah Bas, uh, Yitzhak Meshulam Faish, and, and Chaya Chana Edel. Be'ezra Sashem. She should have a continued alias neshama. Thank you for being part of this um, of, of our learning today. What is the topic today? Today is one of the most difficult topics in general, and that is is that how do you, how do you make the decision or where along the spectrum does a government get involved with the runnings of society? And this is something which is strug- we've struggled with for ages. Every society struggles with how much free market. How much regulation do you have? And every government has a different way, and every country has a different way of figuring it out, tightening the, tightening the bolts on this particular issue. Is it more regulated? Is it more socialist, more capitalist? Is it less regulated? Is it unfettered capitalism? When does the government need to re-regulate things? This is something which, uh, which um, affects us on a daily basis. Much of the political debates we have about governments is, is about this free trade. And... One of, the, one of the places this affects is the element of society which deals with the idea of, uh, of, of uh, poverty and welfare nets. How much is the government expected to do that? What responsibility does it bear? What responsibility do we bear towards those who are less fortunate than us in society? And this has been long, a, long, uh, a long debate. I'd like to take an, a, a walk down a fascinating historical avenue um, as it relates to this. But before doing so, just a quick question about, um, about how it relates to the notion of Jewish society. Now, Jewish society, in, we'll call diaspora society certainly, and even in Israel society, is there a role of organized community and government? And the answer is absolutely. Today, in the diaspora, we have to think about it in terms of organizations and community. In Israel, we have to think about it in terms of government. We haven't dealt with government for, um, you know, for the most part of 2,000 years. Only in the last 75, we actually have that as a, an instrument. So a lot of um, diaspora thinking is still in the um, antiquated discussions of community, which is fine. But just appreciate that it can be ratcheted up to a much larger perspective. Just as an example, the greatest, the greatest supporter of Torah in the world today is, which entity is that? The Israeli government. Right, because the Israeli government is far more powerful than any organization, any donor, or any foundation in terms of the amount that's been given to support in Nikola, despite what other people would say about it. But let's just appreciate that. So the government is an extremely powerful organ because it is, it is essentially the... It is the siphon through which taxes are, are channeled and budgets are set. So very, very powerful. But we're going to think about it in terms of the smaller spaces. The smaller spaces which, we, which exist we'll call community, communal spaces. Let's, let's start, let's start t- together. So the Ramam talks about this. Remember the Ramam talks about all aspects of halacha. And this also happens to be in Shulchan Aruch as well. But the Ramam is you know, setting, setting the framework for us. Is there a responsibility? And he says yes on a city by city basis. Again dealing with a more, we'll call it smaller area of governance. 
there, there is a requirement. And we're just going to learn through some of the halachas together, and then we're going to uh, see an interesting application of this in halacha. So the first, uh, the first source is the Ramam in Hilchus Mat In the ninth parak, he says, "Call Ir Shiesh by Yisrael, any city which has a Jewish presence, which is pretty much uh, a lot of cities around the world." Um, so there is a responsibility to set up a system by which the poor are taken care of. And the, and this, the, the responsibility is to collect and to distribute. And who are the people who are chosen? People who have a history on Ne'emonim are people who are, who, are, who are faithful people. It's an Ereshavis distribution set up by the city as well. And then he goes on to describe the next paragraph, another idea of a daily what's called um, a distribution, which is Tamchui, those who can't make it from meal to meal or day to day, that's set up by the city. Notice, by the way, who is setting up such a system? Who's setting up such a system? What's the responsibility on? The, the community. So therefore, who would be the representative of the city just to, uh, to appreciate this? Probably communal leaders, rabbis, like would get together, have a council and say, our city needs X. Notice that that's a little different than, to, than where we are today. Notice that most of the organizations, and just to appreciate where we stand today in America, most organizations are set up by, you know, magnanimous individuals who, who want to fill a gap generally speaking, and then there, there, because it's done in such a way, it isn't a community organization, although it will turn to the, the community as a communal organization, uh, but there'll be multiple organizations doing similar things, right? And there'll be overlap between them because it wasn't set up by the community, it was set up by wonderful people. But in the end of the day, right? So if it had been the way the Ramam describes it, the community would get together, say, what do we need? We'll have one organization for all food distribution, one organization for all clothing distribution. And then the community will take responsibility and with responsibility comes the fact that its budget is not based on fundraisers and dinners, but based on collection. Right? So just to understand the difference between, I would say, even the tzedakah collection in our societies are more capitalistic than what the Ramam is describing. Just to, to appreciate this. Okay? So it's a, it's a, what was that? Similarly, again, it started off with an individual, which is wonderful, and, and the community bears a responsibility towards it, but it wasn't the community saying, oh, this is what we need. It was a few individuals who got together and then, you know, and, and reversed into, into the community, which is great. And that's why it should be, because there, there was an absence of it. But it really, really, it should be a priori, the community saying, what is it that we need to do? How do we set this up? Who's going to be in charge of it? And therefore, how do we support it? Meaning, every household distributes, puts a line item on their, on their, on their monthly, weekly budget that goes towards us because this is not a, this is not a, this is not a game. This is, this is a, this is a, a basic responsibility. Yes. Good one. Wait, what was that? Yeah, the Mitzvah scheme is a wonderful thing. I just, again, it's, it's set up in the void and, and most communities, thank God, we have, we have a Chevra Kaddisha. And so, and, and, and shuls and communities should have Chevra Kaddishas. They are set up in the absence in what we'll call the Shtibel world where there's no such organization. But again, it's set up by wonderful people, but it's, it's, it's in, it's, it's, it's not a, it wasn't a community organization, just to appreciate this. The Ramam is saying is the community needs to get together and set up these organizations. So there seems to be some requirement of regulation. More than that, let's say, what, what about oversight? So in source two, the Ramam says, Hakupa and on You cannot have one sole individual who has full power over the kupa, over the, the charity distribution. Why? Because power corrupts, it's not good to have one person by themselves. It's not good to have themselves. You can't have somebody financially responsible of the community with sole proprietorship. There has to be oversight. There has to be somebody else who's, who's looking at the books, who's in the office. Right? And it can only be distributed among three. Means there needs to be a committee. It can't be that the all the power or the bottleneck is through one person as well. So it's set up in such a way that there is oversight as well internally. Um, says the, says the Rambam. Let's talk about uh, source three: suspicion. So the Rambam says, So let's say that the person who is the responsible party of the community also is, has his own debts that he, he gives out, he gives loans to people. And let's say this person who owes the, um, him money for a personal debt happens to encounter them on Central Avenue. And now he wants to repay the debt. 
So what's the problem? So now the problem is we're going to be mixing personal and communal funds, right? And that's not so good, right? That's not so good because all you, all you need now is somebody to say, aha, you see what's going to happen. What, 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 what will the picture on the front page of the local rag look like? Right? It's going to be, you know, garbage stocker taking money from the individual and placing where? In the top pocket of their suit, right? That's not a good picture to have on the front page of things because naturally nobody will ask what actually happened, right? The story will have to be explained afterwards. So says the Rambam, <laughs> he cannot put any monies this person receives personally into their wallet. He has to put any monies into the distribution bag that he's carrying. And then he'll afterwards he'll take it out. Because there has to be a person who, who lives in this space has to be above suspicion. You can't mix personal and public fund, uh, public funds in terms of the public eye. One has to be very careful about these things as well. Um, and by the way, even this goes even further back. If you go to the Mishnah, it talks about the Gabite stock of the base of Megdash, and it talks about they used to have to speak all the time because of the concern that maybe they'd be hiding money in their mouths, right? So you have to be like, there's, there's certain levels of transparency. By the way, things are not new. These are, these are all the levels. And the, the, obviously, Allah values the importance of transparency over here. Coercion, this is the interesting piece. This piece also does not exist in our community as much, which is, They do a house to house, right? Because the community has to float these organizations. This is not private organizations that need dinners or breakfast. These are, this is what the community has to do. So let's say, you know, number, number 24 on XYZ Lane is, uh, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't give the distributions. They don't believe. They don't have people who need and they, for, therefore they don't, uh, don't contribute towards that. So then based in being as the Charity is a representation of the community. Therefore, the community, the community's arm, which is a judicial arm, which is going to be there, um, the based in, is going to have to uh, take uh, take force, forceful acts against number twenty-four and X Y Z Lane to ensure that they're contributing to the community. Because how could you live in a community without contributing? Which leads to the next question: which is so how long do you have to be living in the community for that to be to that to that to be your your responsibility? So Ram says that residency is dependent on a few things. In source five, Mish. Once you reach 30 days in the community, you now have entered the residency requirements for that, that, that area and you have to contribute towards that. Before then, you're a visitor, it's nice, you're on a um, freeloader, but once you're, once you're uh, there for 30 days, you're in. Three months in, right, you get your, your, your lease it reaches three months. Then you're there for the daily distribution. That's the soup kitchen. Six months residency. Then you get into the clothing distribution responsibility. Right. So you, you, you can imagine the letter under the under the, the door is going to the, the envelope is now going to include more requirements for your for your your, your contributions. Then you have to go to the Hebrew Free Burial Society's responsibility and you're part of that. Notice over here that none of this is about individual magnanimous, you know, feeling feeling good about things. And this is about how how Jewish communities need to run. And in order for it to run, there are certain of, uh, facilities which need to exist, including Chavra Kaddisha, food distribution, clothing distribution, and everybody's responsible, and everybody therefore is forced to be responsible to this. So it sounds like it's a very regulated society um, in, in a certain degree. And we've lost that to a certain degree because the, the generally communal governance and force and coercion is not something which is a value. Uh, necessarily in the society that we live and being as that's a that's a fact that's not the way it works you should know in the catholic societies to a certain degree it still does exist in certain ways so as an example let's say the catholic school is not dependent on those paying tuition it's dependent on the community as an example so the community itself pays for the school because it is a value to have a school so as opposed to school coming cap in hand to have to beg from the people who are the parents which is a small as called subset of the community um, it, the entire community supports institutions, as an example. So it's, uh, there's something that's worthwhile thinking about in terms of the way that Jewish communal structure is today, in, is certainly in America, where it's all seen as, as uh, starting at uh, zero, where, and, and my contribution is seen as a nice thing. 
in the way that it's, it's seen in the way of the Ramam's world is it's not a nice thing, it's a necessary thing because these are things that you need to exist in a community. And we're very blessed to be in a society which creates these organizations, but the, the attitude we have towards them is it's nice and it's good, but it's not good, it's necessary. Um, so there, there should be more partnership or ownership um, of the community itself. That, that, that beer is made. Now, let's, uh, this takes us down a fascinating discussion that, that actually, or a historical event that occurred around this. And it goes back to the 1980s. Um, and at, at this point in England, where there was a severe change in terms of the policy of how the government related to the individual. And so moving into the Thatcher era, Margaret Thatcher, who the then Prime Minister of, uh, um, of, uh, of, of the United Kingdom, um, also just to be noted in terms of the alliance with the, the Reagan administration, the Thatcher-Reagan administration across the Atlantic, with similar conservative views of the way that, uh, that, uh, um, that the society should, uh, should run. Um, Margaret Thatcher was a believer, and this was out espousing one side over the other, but just to, to, to just quick summary. Um, of, uh, of how this works. So she, one of the things that she did was she denationalized many of the, of the major organizations, so like the mines, she denationalized. She, she broke the unions. She, 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 she was able to move it back to a more capitalistic society. Why? Because at that time, the GDP, the economy of England was, was in a terrible place. So the England was in, was in debt. And her moral was is that people do not wash rented cars. Right? If, you, if you're getting something which is not yours, you don't take care of it. You don't care. You don't look after it um, so much. And against much, uh, against much friction, because this ended up hurting a lot of people, uh, certainly at the, very, at the beginning, many, many people were affected by this. Um, she slowly moved it back to a capitalistic society where people had to earn for themselves, take pride in their own work, and ultimately a change. So just like in, in, terms, of, in terms of appreciation of the numbers, take a look at page 3. Um, to page four, this is a, this is a, a chart of the, of the GDP um, and uh, over the period of, um, it's from 1989 to, um, uh, sorry, 79 to 89, so the 10 years in which she was in power. And you can see the growth over here in total government, these are points, um, law and order, employment and, and training, health and social security. The, I think just in terms of employment and training, so a 33% increase in, in GDP. It's a very significant increase, and this was as a function of much of her policies. And by the way, many people suffered. Many people lost jobs because they were subsisting on government organizations and welfare as, uh, as, as she did this. And there was a lot of um, friction that she faced. It is, it's worthwhile noting that um, she was such a powerful person. She was called the Iron Lady. She was so powerful um, that, uh, that, that she, at a certain point, there was, uh, there was, the, she never, she, she reached such a power, uh, epoch of power that uh, they, they used to, they used to joke. The, the joke wa was that when she would walk into a restaurant with a number of her, of her ministers, they would say to her, would you like steak or vegetables? And uh, she, she said, she said, I'll take steak. And she says, and vegetables? And she says, they'll take steak too. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, she was. She ruled the England with an iron fist, and um, and she changed a lot of things. However, it's interesting that although she she managed to overcome much resistance in um, Parliament itself for many years, it was in, it was fascinating that the one area in which she faced resistance actually became the church, and the the uh, the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, ultimately um, did a two-year uh, research in which he published a pamphlet, an extremely long pamphlet based on his research called Faith in the City. And in it, Faith in the City. You can see the, the report is found on page five, on the top of the top of page five, that's the cover page of it. A call for action by church and nation. A report of the Archbishop of Canterbury's commission in urban priority areas. UPAs, were they called? We call this inner city slums. That's what, uh, there would be projects, right? That's the, the, the British word for it was these UPAs. And uh, the, the, the tagline, as I just quoted over here, is to examine the strengths, insights, problems, and needs of the church's life and mission in urban priority areas. 
and as a result to reflect on the challenge which God may be making to church and nation and to make recommendations to appropriate bodies. And this was not a small report by any standards. It's, I, I, I think it was 440 pages. It's a very significant report based on research done in the inner cities um, and the, those who are living there. And it was essentially a criticism on government based on a number of ideas, based on, um, based on policy, based on statistics, and then also based on the Hebrew and Christian Bibles, saying that what the, the Thatcher administration was doing was, uh, was against the basic precepts of, um, of the Hebrew, or the Old and the New Testaments. And that was the criticism, which is a hard thing to, uh, to, to, to hear, that the, the, the government itself is being attacked by religion. Um, with some significant recommendations. This was published in 1985, and it was the beginning of 1986 um, that the chief rabbi of England then, a man by the name of Rabbi Emanuel Jacobowitz, um, who actually was a very fascinating individual, uh, he actually served here in the Fifth Avenue Synagogue for eight years in the 50s to 60s, returned, he was the chief rabbi of, uh, um, of Dublin, an island, and ultimately became the chief rabbi of England, was, uh, was knighted. He, uh, in the beginning of 1986, wrote a long article called From Doom to Hope. I actually managed to find, find it. It was quite hard to find in the Jewish Chronicle. And to get the original, I found the, I found the originals. It was a double-page issue. It was a double-page spread, a very long um, essay. And in this essay, the chief rabbi essentially defends the... Um, the Prime Minister against the attack of the church on her policies. Fascinating, fascinating mo moment in history. Um, Margaret Thatcher ultimately said, I appreciate the rabbi of the church, which was, you know, if you think about that, that's a pretty remarkable thing to hear in, certainly in the United Kingdom, um, after centuries of, uh, of, uh, of anti-Semitism, you know that the Jews were kicked out of England for 350 years, right? So until Oliver Crom uh, Crom of Cromwell there, was, there were no Jews in England since the 1200s. It's a, it's a long and dark history in England. Um, but uh, nonetheless, he wrote a, uh, this article, which although is extensive, is certainly much shorter than the, the article Faith in the City or the paper, The Faith in the City. I'd like to concentrate on a few fa uh, salient points that he makes. The first thing he says is he points to the fact that Perhaps those who are living in these projects, in what are they called, these uh, urban priority areas, have a lot to learn from the Jews. Because guess what? If you reverse 100 years, where were all the Jews living? They were called in those days not urban priority areas. That's a very nice euphemistic way of call, calling a ghetto, right? Which means to say um, an area which is not part of the main commerce and society, where there is dilapidated housing, with overpopulation and not enough amenities. That's precisely what a ghetto, a ghetto was. And guess what? Guess where Jews were living or forced to live for centuries with, uh, with economic ceilings and with the inability to be able to escape them? Guess what? That, that's where the Jews were living. And he pointed out that perhaps there are some lessons which are worthwhile learning from the Jews because he pointed out that the Jews are no longer living in these UPAs. They were no longer living in the ghettos. Somehow they had left. And how did they, live? they leave? He pointed out that it was not because they demanded government hang, uh, um, handouts. It was not because they demanded that they needed to have extra supplements or bursaries to, uh, to colleges. It was because they focused on the only things they had within their control, and that is education and aspiring that the next generation do better. That the parents who came from a foreign country, who didn't speak the language, who didn't have as many opportunities, worked the skin off their backs in order their children should be able to get high school degrees and maybe even college degrees so that their children could be professionals and enter society. And guess what? It worked. But he, point out, he pointed out that it is irrational to assume that suddenly that uh, arriving immigrant is going to, within two months, suddenly become mainstreamed into society because they demand that society owes, owes it to them. That's not the way it worked for the Jews, and it's not the way it works for anyone. And so he points out that there's a lot to be learned from this, and he, he actually quotes a sermon he gave in New York City when he was the rabbi over here about this particular issue, because he was talking in the 60s, of course, when there was a lot of the same kind of friction happening in the inner cities here in the main cities in America as well. Really worthwhile thinking about this. This is not the message that one wants to hear. In fact, this is in 1986. He describes a particular meeting he was at where there was a Jamaican um, 
a Jamaican religious leader at a meeting who was describing that the police, uh, uh, talking about police brutality or police racism against his subset of the population, not something necessarily new today. And he pointed out that one of the things, and it's true, that there, there, there is a difference between perhaps the Jewish conditions and perhaps some of the other ethnic minorities who lived in, the, in these ghettos, societies, and it's not about race or skin color, but it was about, about culturally Jewish. And he says, but in the end of the day, he says the first thing that the Jews did was to embrace the system of government and law, not to fight it and demand that it was unfair to them. Um, and it took a long time to, to amalgamate into society, but their contention was, trying to be more British, not trying to change British society, but rather trying to meet society as opposed to trying to tell society was wrong and everything needed to change around them. So you just, there's a lot, there's a lot that can be worthwhile thinking about 30 plus years later. Um, to, to, there's, a, there's a lot that, that still is relevant in this particular issue. But this is not relating to the report so much as he's saying we have the shared experience of having lived through this. Maybe there's what that can be learned through the Jewish, the, the Jewish angle um, as well. But being, going into the actual the, theology of it, he quotes a number of things. So the first thing he says, and this is, this is an, important, uh, an important piece. Let's take a look at, um, um, at, at in, on page six, in the middle of the page, he does give a lot of credence to the report. And he says, before examining the findings of the report in any detail, it should be stated emphatically and without equivocation that Judaism is in complete agreement with the basic assumption underlying the report that religious leaders and organizations should address themselves to the grave social problems afflicting society today, both by arousing public con uh, cons conscience on widespread suffering and injustice, granting a high place among our theological priorities, and if necessary, even by questioning the morality of economic policies in the light of their effects. So you say, yes, the Archbishop of Canterbury is correct. The, the religious leaders do need to be at the table when making government policies because it's going to affect society and guess whose boots are on the ground is those who live in those, those societies and perhaps have a perspective historically, theologically on this. So he agrees with the principle in general that such a report should be issued. However, he, uh, he, uh, then at that point in time he diverges and says that there are many things that are said in the report which are incorrect as well. So uh, let us take a look at some of them. Um, so the, in source six, this is on page six, he quotes faith in the city. This is uh, nine, when it says 9.52, that means chapter nine, article 52. He says, but we must question whether this is, this is the Archbishop of Canterbury at a time when our economy is in transition to an uncertain future, dogmatic and inflexible macroeconomic stance is appropriate. We believe that it is more open, a more open debate is needed for this, uh, about this type of society, pre, pre, uh, sorry. We believe that a more open debate is needed about the type, that, the type of society present economic policies are shaping. We recommend that the church and its bishops should play a full part in such a debate for Christian gospel sets values in relation to dignity and the worth of each individual and in relation to human society against which economic dogma must be judged. So he's saying that ultimately you can't make unilateral decisions about society, then it seems to be more of a democratic uh, position. It's the government's fault for ignoring the rights of specific individuals by doing certain unilateral actions which will affect many impoverished people and taking away their safety nets or their, um, their paychecks uh, from, the, from the government. Um, so uh, this, the, the, so it says, it responds Rabbi Jacobowitz, in Source 7, he says, well, yes, he says, but the selfishness of workers in attempting to secure better conditions at the cost of the rising unemployment and immense public misery can be just as morally indefensible as the rapaciousness of the wealthy in exploiting the working class in order to add even more digits to the astronomical profits, or as unacceptable as a government biased in favor of equating success with virtue rather than need with opportunity and human dignity with supreme merit. So he's saying that in the end of the day, yes, there are many ills in society, but think about this for a moment. You have the people at the very, very top, the one percenters, and they're using those perhaps as their base to be able to advance their cause um, without any recourse from the, from the lower echelons of society. But there are also those who are using the system itself at the cost of other people who can't use the system because of the systems of welfare that were, that were created as well. That's equally as problematic when you create systems which can be manipulated and are manipulated by the, by the many at the, at the bottom as well. That's what one, one observation he makes. Let's go, let's, let's go a little further. What about the attitude to wealth? So, the, 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 um, 
uh, the, uh, argues the Archbishop of Canterbury in Source 8, the tradition of Christian social thought, he says it is against the background of the excessive individualism of much Christian thinking in the 19th century that we must place Marx's perception of that evil is to be found not just in the human heart, but in the very structures of economic and social relationships. You know where he's going now, right? You can see where the Archbishop is going. In other words, society, capitalistic society has problems in and of itself. Therefore, we need a little more Marxism, right? We need a little bit of, of regulation to take away the imbalances of wealth. This perception is also found to a notable degree in the Old Testament. That's our book of the Torah from which, in fact, Marx may have derived it. Wow, that's a big, that's a big statement. Okay, <laughs> so, right, and of course, Karl Marx, with his fabulous beard, was Jewish, although I doubt that, that, that this was where he started necessarily. It could be that he maybe hung, hung his hat on it. But, but where there is explicit recognition of the inevitable tendency of the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer, unless some const constraint is imposed to limit the freedom of the individuals to profit without restraint from a market economy. Right, so you're saying that wealth in and of itself is seen as a bad thing in terms of the Bible, the Old Testament. It needs, you, need to have, you need to have some sort of way to, to regulate it that you distribute more evenly because otherwise the, the division is just going to continue. Which, by the way, is a pretty uh, accurate assessment. It's very hard to break, to, to break that. Um, and then he goes... Good question, yes. Good, good, good question. So he's arguing that by the Torah's commandment to give charity, essentially it's trying to regulate away wealth from the wealthy. And you're pointing out that it doesn't help, right? Which is a good point. Um, that's true. That's true. But the, the, it's, 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 it's more than that. It's more than that. Take a look a little further. Look at the, the, the gap. And then the next paragraph says, The creation of, the, of wealth must always go hand in hand with distribution. The product... Must, must have an, some intrinsic value and its production must have due regard for social ecological consequences. It's a long Christian tradition reaching back to the Old Testament prophets and supported by influential schools of economic and political thought which firmly rejects the amassing of wealth unless it is justly obtained and fairly distributed. Meaning wealth by itself is bad unless you're distributing it as well. That's, that's, that's his argument. Says Robert Jacobowitz, is wealth inherently bad in Judaism? Not necessarily so. Just yesterday in Meshavah Zavarachim, what was the one thing we asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Kavad, right? So like, that's in liturgy, that's in part of the prayers, is we ask for Oyshev Kavad. If wealth is seen as such a bad thing, right, that, that, that needs to be sort of speak tightened and regulated and distributed, then, then how are we asking for it? More, more than that, the, in fact, he, point, he points to a few sources. Let's take a look at the top of page 8. The, the, when Moshe Rabbeinu receives the recommendation of his father-in-law, Yisro, to appoint judges, he is told, These are the conditions for judges in Jewish Jewish community. Fascinating uh, list of things. These are vigorous men. who fear God. Men of truth, and they hate uh, bribery. What does, it, what, what does it mean? Says the, says the, the, the Rashi, quoting the Ashirim. A judge needs to be rich because then they have no reliance on anybody who's going to be accosting them in the street about their, about their decision making. In other words, riches are seen as a prerequisite to, communal, to, to certain elements of communal leadership because it makes you less impervious, less, um, uh, less weak to these things. The Gomorrah is the susceptible. The Gomorrah in talks about In terms of distribution, there's also a cap on distribution as well. Meaning, how much is an individual expe expected to give? And we talk about, uh, uh, by the way, today it's more complex just because people have vest are vested in, in multiple investments. But, but uh, when most things were liquid, a person can't give more than a fifth, 20% of their assets. And that was, that's the max. That's the max cap of, of where, where it where it, where it fits in terms of um, giving stocker. And Rashi says, why Because if a person gives too much, they themselves will become needy. Now, there needs to be an element of ownership and distribution, but it's not because I don't own the money. It's I own the money, and I'm allowed to ask for that money, and I'm allowed to succeed, but I need to give as well. Um, the Gemara in Shabbos. How do the rich people in Israel, why are they so successful? He says, Because they give ma'aser. The, the Gemara Darshan, that you are allowed to 
give in order to get rich. Meaning, to say, if you give stock, you know Hashem is guaranteed that there's going to, there's going to be a payback from that. How do they get rich? They did it because they gave stock as well. So yes, stock is a requirement, but is wealth considered something which is terrible? No, uh, necessarily. Attitude to work. The Archbishop of Canterbury goes on in Source 16. And he points out, so starting on line three, social position follows types of employment and pro or profession. Long working hours are rewarded by extra pay or promotion. Personal respect is gained by the ability to hold down a job. One of the first questions you asked of a stranger is, what do you do? There is none of this in the Bible or early Christian tradition. Certainly there is a condemnation of idleness. None may unilaterally contract out of work, which is necessary for society to sustain itself. But beyond this, work is never seen as a means of gaining wealth or status. It's not, in other words, work is not seen as, a, as an ideal or who you are. Why is society so focused on what you do as, as opposed to who you are? Now, there's a lot to be to said about that. But says Jacobus, I beg your pardon, but if you read Sefer Yona, <laughs> what was the question the sailors asked Yona on the boat there? They say, The first thing that sailors ask him is, what do you do? What, what precisely do you do? Meaning, he says, you'll never find this in the Bible. You actually do find this in the Bible, interestingly enough. As well, when Akash Baruch takes Adam Arishon, the first thing he does, What? to work it and to guard it. In other words, work is seen not as this negative, bidi evid, terrible situation that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that shouldn't be defining us. It's, it's, it was the first thing human beings were told to do. The morning by Basra says, quoting in Source 19 says, in the Sugyas of um, um, uh, later on, by Menashe ben Moshe, uh, Gershon ben Menashe ben, ben Moshe, it is better to, uh, to do Avodah Zorah than to need other people. The grandson says, whoa, whoa, whoa. The grandson of Moshe, whose name was Yonatan ben Gershon ben Moshe, thought that meant to say that even it's better to be involved in Avodah Zorah rather than to be on, uh, um, on the dole, to be uh, dependent on society. And that was an incorrect reading of the statement. That's why he worked in a place called Pesamecha. He was the priest of the shrine in the, in the times of Shoftim. Not a good thing. So the Gemara says, that does not what the Gemara meant. That's not what the tradition means. The Gemara says, don't, it is important even to skin a carcass in the, the, the marketplace, which is obviously a very degrading and very lowly and very humiliating job. It's not, it's not very pleasant. Do that to earn your salary rather than to require charity. Rather than to require charity. Avodashi Zoraloi. Do a work which is strange to you rather than require charity. In other words, what is the space of work, the attitude to work? Well, the Torah seems to say, take, take pride in your work. That's part of who you're supposed to be. The, the Shira Malos Kuf Chav Ches is Ashrei Kol Yirei Hashem HaOlech Bidrachov Yagiyah Kapecha Kisachel Ashrecha Vatola. With the work of your hands you should eat. You should work hard and earn hard. You shouldn't be sitting there getting handouts, feeling good because society is supporting you. You should do everything within your means to work hard and take pride in it. Um, person who, who, who makes a neder or a restriction on one's spouse not to work, that's going to end in an ended marriage because batola, um, unemployment or uninvolvement, idleness is going to lead to all kinds of terrible things. Idleness is not a good thing. Employment is way better than idleness. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is fo focusing on the fact that work is, is overemphasized. And why is society looking at work so much as, as an ideal that there should, it should, we should de-emphasize the, the important, importance of work? And Rabbi Jacobus is saying, well, the Torah seems to think of that as, as, as pretty significant. What are, and I think perhaps the most important of the arguments or the divergences is entitlement versus responsibility. This, this is a very important paragraph in Source 22. This is where, where the Archbishop and his, and, and his team point to the following. The high incidence of unemployment and other forms of deprivation obliges the state to provide compensating benefits to those who do not share the relative affluence of the rest. Right? So remember, as you, as you denationalize the mines and as you take away welfare, there's lots of unemployment. And that one or two things happen. Either 
that either people work hard to find new opportunities, right? Or the government steps in and offers um, the welfare or, this, or, or the nets to be able to keep people, to, to be able to make sure that people are not suffering, which ultimately will keep them in that space to a large degree. And there's, there's, there's what to be said about both, both sides. It's, there's, there's lots of people who suffer, unfortunately. Um, he says, but it's the government's responsibility to offer those to, the, to, the, to those in deprivation. But it is not easy for state, uh, to the sta uh, for state benefits to be given to individuals without affronting their human dignity. It is successfully accomplished in the case of non-means-tested entitlements such as child benefits and old age pensions. But when more detailed inquiries into circumstances to be made, it demands the services of well-trained, patient and sympathetic civil servants. The, administra the administrative economics economies introduced by the DHSS is in the face of the ever-growing numbers of claimants produce situations of acute personal humiliation. The large number of benefits not taken up by those entitled to them and the degrading conditions under which benefits have to be claimed in many DHSS offices testify to the failure of our society to find an acceptable solution to one of the more inhumane consequences of our free market economy. So he's saying it's very hard, it's degrading to have to go make a claim for benefits. And because of that, therefore, people don't claim, and therefore, people are falling through the cracks, and people are suffering, which is, by the way, true. There's a, there's, this is a, a terrible truth in society. The government's not doing enough to provide and to provide effectively um, for, for, for those in, in need. So, Rajakovic says, yes, it is true. There, there is the, 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 the importance of the, we'll call it the dignity of the recipient and the responsibility of the giver. There's no question. He says, however, Torah doesn't look at things that way. Torah does not look at things that way. So um, his observation is, and this is a very fascinating um, theological observation, he says in Torah 23, You can't close your hand if there's somebody who's in need. You can't close your hand. What, what, why? Why is that? Is that as a function of the entitlement of the receiver or as a responsibility of the giver? That's the question that's at hand. If you're to ask the Archbishop of Canterbury, the answer is the entitlement of the receiver. You know, you cannot have a society which has people who are impoverished and therefore they are entitled to the benefits and therefore the government needs to jump to to ensure that they're receiving because that's their entitled benefit. But Raja Jacobus says that's not the way the Torah looks at it. The Torah looks at it as the relationship not on the side of the receiver but on the side of the giver. Everybody has the responsibility to give. It is your responsibility to give. And therefore, I have the responsibility to earn, to succeed, to, be, to, to feel good about my earnings, and to, to give. In fact, this is so true that it, it spans the board. As we looked at a little bit last week, even the poor have the responsibility to give. And therefore, the dignity of the giving or the receiving is in that everybody is in the same bucket. Everybody has the responsibility to help those. It's seen as, as, as us being the messenger to a certain degree. In fact, here's an example of, of this in, in Alacha. When you come to the Shemitah, there's this, there's this thing called the Prusbul, right? So this is like Hillel, Hillel was Masak in this Prusbul. And it seems so counterintuitive because here you, here you go. What happens is the Torah says you've got to, you got to lend, 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 right? Comes the seventh year, and then all the, at the end of the seventh year, all the debts are cancelled, right? So what's going to end up happening, just a basic social economic um, outcome of this, is you are not going to, you're not going to find any loans in the sixth year, right? Because let's be honest, right? You know, the reason people are learning then, but so that means so that the economy will grind to a standstill, right? People won't be opening up businesses, people won't be doing anything in that sixth year. So it's uh, so Hillel comes along and says, no, what we'll do is is we will pass the authority of the collection of the debts to based into a communal institution to an enterprise rather than an individual and therefore the debts will be sustained and therefore people carry on um, giving, lending money. That's, the, that's generally how it's seen and therefore in a certain sense everybody says well that's kind of like reform Judaism, right? <laughs> right, so we don't like what the Torah is saying so we'll find a loophole to make it easier for us to carry on doing what we're doing in spite of this, you know, the, this, the, this, you know, divine re regulation. So like, how does that work precisely? Says the Rashbam in understanding this is we perhaps misunderstood the whole process. Listen to the concern that Hillel had. Take a look at source 24 in the Rashbam. Rabbeinu, this is Rabbi Shmuel, the grandson of Rashi in his commentary on the Gemara in Bav Basra where the principle is discussed. He says, He says, There were no, there were no loans being 
given out in the sixth year. That it would cancel the debts. While you he saw that the people were transgressing their personal responsibility to give to others. Therefore, Ahmad Hilal his skin So therefore he said that in order to allow people to do what is their responsibility, he created the Prusbul, which means just to appreciate what, what he's saying is. His concern was not for the impoverished. His concern was for the giver who was doing evil. The Torah says, don't be evil in your heart and withhold debts. And they were all doing that because they were scared of losing their loans. They were scared of, 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 the, of, the, of the Shemitah. So in order to facilitate people doing what they needed to do, which is giving debt. Now you say, but wasn't he concerned about the social implications? No. The social implications are an outcome of the responsibility of the individual. That's, that's, uh, that's his argument. Now, by the way, how did he do it? It happens to be a very fascinating thing is that essentially by ceding your rights, if you read the actual, the, the, the Pasuk, call Baal Mashi Yodai. That's all the very powerful words. The creditor, the Baal, the owner of the money needs to shamoit, needs to relinquish. What he was doing was he was creating a similar mechanism where you're actually signing over, you're relinquishing your rights to another entity is, as part of this as well. So just to appreciate what's happening over here. It's not because the bottom of society needs it. It's rather because everybody in society d is responsible to do it. Nachman, yes. No, we do to a certain degree. So if you remember, last week the Rama says, if you have a knock on the door and there's no way of, uh, of, of, uh, of figuring out and who this person is, there's no background and, and they need to eat, you have to, you have to give them uh, uh, food to eat. You have to give them something to get, to get food. More than that, not. But there, there is a, a basic, we'll call it, you know, living requirement. If somebody needs, needs food, you, 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 need to, you need to give to them. But even, to, even independent of that, I, the, the point is like this, is that when, let's say it's verified, let's, let's say that to the case the Torah talks about is verified, we know this is a, a person who's impoverished, right? We know this is a person who's, who's in a difficult situation. And they extend their hand. Am I giving because they are entitled to receive because of the fact that they're in a lower economic strata in society? Or am I giving because I have the responsibility that's upon my shoulders of giving? And the answer is the latter, not the, not the prior, not the, not, not the former. If you're 10% already, you still, the, you still have the obligation Correct. Correct. That's what it seems like, and certainly, it's certainly verified. If not verified, at least minimally. That's what it seems like. But again, it, it, it's not because we need to create the society, the systems to to support everybody, but rather that everybody has to be giving. And he, and his observation is is that that's the way to avoid humili um, to humiliation. There's an by creating government systems, there's an automatic humiliation. I know somebody's on welfare. I know somebody's on welfare. And he told me he cannot get out of welfare right now. He, there's no way he can work. There's no way he can work because he can't find a job which is going to pay for his medical benefits, right? And will give him enough of a part-time allowance into the work world again that's going to be a, a, enable him to have the dignity of, of getting out of it. It's, 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 it's very hard. And it was all well-intended, right? And, and thank God for it because there'll be thousands of people who would be suffering otherwise. But... There's a, there's a there's a there's a there's there's a humiliation that comes from it, uh, as well. And what what Rabbi Jacobowitz is observing is you break the cycle of humiliation when everyone's on the same playing field in terms of giving, in terms of the responsibility as opposed to the entitlement. He, he, there's other other sources just to, to quote one one last one we'll look at to, together. We looked at the Rambam in terms of the fact that teach a person how to fish, right? About the, uh, the um, giving them a job, not the money. But more than that, in Source 26, he says, We should know that we sometimes think that we're so magnanimous, we're so good and wonderful, we're giving. But really, truly, actually, the, the person who is, we are giving to does more for us. The person I did with today is, and she, um, she calls Boaz, not that he did with me, that I did with him, meaning to say, what is it she gave more to Boaz and Boaz gave to her? The Torah society looks at us as the individuals and says to us, you have the responsibility to give, and guess what? You'll be gaining more out of it. That's, the, that's how you break the, the, the cycle of humiliation. Ultimately, he points out that where do we see the system? We see the system that even the poor are required to give. They have their own sense of dignity because they give. Where do we see this? Is the Levium. 
How does this work? The Levium are essentially supported by society. We need to have teachers, so it's systemized. It's part of the culture that 10% of our agricultural wealth goes to the Levium. They then serve in the base of English, they serve as teachers, they serve as scribes, they serve as the, as the spiritual educators for our children and the next generation. But guess what? When they receive their, 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 uh, their, 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 uh, their uh, Meister, they have to give what's called a Meister Mina Meister. They themselves have to give to the Kohanim as well, meaning they give back. Which means to say that even those who are on support are giving support. And so Rabbi Jacobus is pointing out, and that's how dignity is created, is by responsibility, not by entitlement, ultimately. And he, he points out at the top of page 11, guided more by moral concerns rather than economic theories and suppositions, a Jewish religious contribution would lay greater emphasis on building up self-respect by encouraging ambition and enterprise through a more demanding and more satisfying work ethic, which is designed to eliminate idleness and to nurture pride in eating the toil of one's hands as the first immediate targets. As he points out, any job is better than paid idleness. Now, r folks, this is a very deeply complex topic, and there are political and social and economic theories and millions and millions of words that are, that are written about this, and those who are involved in this in different, different states and different state laws and different inner cities and sees the effects of this. It's a very painful subject. There's, everything is done from an in intent, at least in theory, of trying to help. But how do you try to help? And what uh, Jacobus is essentially saying is, don't look at... The, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as an expression of Marxist theory. That's, that's his point. Marxism looked at, the, the, at essentially shaking everybody up, distributing wealth. Nobody's allowed to get rich. Rich is bad. Jobs are, and, and everybody needs to get, uh, to get equal, a system which we've seen has failed in multiple societies. The, the Torah does not advocate for that. The Torah advocates for the rights of the individual, the responsibility of the individual, which eliminates, eliminates the humiliation and also at the same time ensures that societies do succeed. Couple this now with what the, we just learned at the beginning with the Rambam. Let's put, go back to the Rambam for a second. What the Rambam says, every city needs to ensure that it has the, the ability to cater for those who are more, less fortunate. And how is it seen? It's seen as the responsibility of residents of every single person um, in this as well. And the Raman concludes, and, I just, uh, the, the, and I'd like to go back to page two, the very top of the page. And this, uh, I think we'll close with this because Jewish society is, is, is complex and it's nuanced. But take a look at the top box, second paragraph. He says, Me'olam, forever, we have never seen nor heard. But kahal mi Yisrael, in a Jewish community, Sha'ain Lahem Kupa Sheltstaka, that does not have a charity organization supporting those less fortunate. You see difference. Every Jewish society cares for its poor. Not by saying you don't deserve the wealth, but by saying that it's the responsibility of the community to distribute as needed for those who are, who are, who are in less fortunate circumstances. Ultimately, it was concluded, um, and ultimately, uh, Margaret Thatcher had a very warm relationship from before this and after this as well. And she, uh, in Source 30, she reportedly told um, people that she wished Rabbi Jacobowitz were the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> She, have, uh, she ultimately knighted uh, Lord, Lord Jacobowitz, and there was a very close relationship between them, not just politically, but also personally um, as well. And I would just leave for further reading, for further reading on today, because it's more complex with the recent um, economic downturns and the, the, uh, the, the, the falls of the market and the buyouts of banks certainly in the 2008. It's worth our reading Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs's most recent book called Morality. And he has a chapter talk to, uh, talking about we'll call the top one percenters, which is a little bit of a different angle on, 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 on greed. And uh, it's, it's very, very fascinating to, I would say, to attenuate what we just learned over here with that perspective. But that's, uh, that's I think, a little bit beyond the scope of our discussion today. Rabbi Isa, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope everybody has a wonderful, meaningful day.